Diversion Podcasts. A Diversion Podcast in association with iHeartRadio. This is the GOAT, Serena. I think the perception is a very good one, but I don't think it's the most accurate one because they don't see, you know, how she is day to day. And that's probably the case with a lot of the great champions. But I think she comes across as a very strong, determined young woman who is driven and and wants to be the very best and has been the very best at, at, at her field. You know, there have been moments of controversy, but I feel like even in the controversy, she finds a way afterwards to rise above. And I think that's, that's amazing. Welcome to the GOAT Season 2 Serena. I'm Chanda Rubin, former world number six, Grand Slam single semifinalist and doubles champion, alongside my co-host, Zena Garrison, a former Wimbledon finalist, world number four, and Olympic gold medalist. In this podcast, part of Diversion's GOAT series, Zena and I and our guest celebrate the career and life of Serena Williams. We'll trace her path as she evolved from an outlier in the tennis establishment into the all-time Grand Slam singles champion and, ultimately, a cultural icon. Sports are a breeding ground for controversy because the stress and strain of competition makes people, and not just athletes, but also officials and others, get somewhat out of character. In this episode, The Controversy Gene, we'll look at the role some well-documented conflicts have played in Serena's career, and how those incidents helped define Serena in the public eye. We will be joined by Serena's coach since 2012, Patrick Maradoglu, and the award-winning tennis and Olympic Games television correspondent and analyst, Mary Carrillo. It sometimes seems that controversy was always around Serena. It's hardly surprising because controversy creates drama and who's a more dramatic figure than Serena? Even as a child, she had theatrical flair. Her favorite role was that of the princess She frequently chose popular singers to portray in family games and improvised talent shows. Her name was barely dry in the newspapers of the world when she went to Los Angeles and dipped her toe into acting. Some of the controversies Serena was embroiled in over her long career were frivolous, even amusing. Who can forget the greatest fashion bomb ever dropped at the U.S. Open? the outfit Serena wore for her first match of the 2004 tournament. It consisted of a distressed, studded blue denim skirt and matching black crop top and those infamous biker boots that were actually leg wrappings worn above her tennis shoes. But what you may not know is that Serena negotiated with the USTA for permission to wear the faux boots for her first round match but she was denied, although she was allowed to keep the wrappings on during the warm-up for her first match. 
The debates generated by Serena's fashion statements were pleasant distractions, like the outfits themselves. But there was nothing whimsical about many of the other controversies that Serena had to navigate. They made for heated water cooler conversations the following morning. And they certainly helped push tennis, at least temporarily, to the forefront in the public imagination. But many of the conflicts also triggered sometimes painful conversations about race, gender, and the fundamentals of fair play. None of that should be surprising. Serena's parents, Richard and Orsine, drilled a sense of pride and self-worth into their daughters at the earliest of ages. It ensured that when the time came, Serena would stand up for herself in any situation under any amount of heat. That was the personal and cultural piece. But there's also an athletic aspect when it comes to Serena and controversy. Tennis is an intensely mental game. It's remarkable that while there are countless players who look Wimbledon ready on the practice courts, only one or a select few in every generation dominate. The emotional and mental demands on top players can make them do a range of things out of anger, fear, frustration, or anxiety with few options for offloading those emotions. And the great ones, like Serena, live with a target on their backs. This is what Jill Smoller, Serena's longtime manager, had to tell us about that. Everybody is going to either play their best match or they're going to shit the bed. Yeah, it, it, go, so it, goes, it goes one way or the other. Yeah. And most of the time, someone is coming and they're going to play their best match. And so I love, you know, do, do I love when she cracks a racket? No, but I know she's going to be okay because she's getting rid of all of that turmoil inside in that moment and then unleashing it forward. Serena's history as a lightning rod for controversy began in spectacular fashion at the important Indian Wells tournament in 2001 when she was a still impressionable 19-year-old. By the time the 2001 edition of the tournament took place, Serena and her sister Venus were regularly meeting in finals amid unsubstantiated rumors that Richard Williams was deciding beforehand which sister would win. Before the semifinal between the sisters at Indian Wells that year, beaten quarterfinalist Elena Dementieva was asked to pick the winner between Venus and Serena. She said, I don't know what Richard thinks about it. I think he will decide who's going to win tomorrow. The comment got widespread attention, yet WTA tour officials did nothing to disavow the comments. The following day, with the crowd of nearly 16,000 already seated, Venus withdrew from the tournament just four minutes before she was to play Serena, citing tendonitis. The crowd was furious. It showered the court with boos and catcalls. Some, including Serena, said they heard racial slurs. Others insisted that the crowd was just venting over being denied a match at the last moment. The following day, with Serena on court playing Kim Clijsters, the crowd continued to boo the Williams family with Richard and Venus in the player guest box. 
Serena wrote in her 2009 memoir, On the Line. What was most surprising about this uproar was the fact that tennis fans are typically a well-mannered bunch. They're respectful. They sit still. Palm Springs, especially, they tended to be pretty well-heeled, too. But I looked up, and all I could see was a sea of rich people, mostly older, mostly white, standing and booing lustily, like some kind of genteel lynch mob. I don't mean to use such inflammatory language to describe the scene, but that's really how it seemed from where I was down on the court. Serena predictably went on to win that match. But the hostile atmosphere led the sisters to boycott the event for the ensuing 14 years until Serena decided to return in 2015. She explained her decision in an article published under her own name in Time magazine early that year. Serena wrote, There are some who say I should never go back. There are others who say I should have returned years ago. I understand both perspectives very well and wrestled with them for a long time. I'm just following my heart on this one. In some ways, the incident was training for what Serena would have to deal with in the years ahead. Here to discuss some of those controversies and other aspects of Serena's career is our first guest, Mary Carrillo. Well, let's get going. I'm excited uh, to talk to our guest, Mary Carrillo, who really needs no introduction. Um, former player, Grand Slam champion, now broadcaster extraordinaire, among other things. Mary, thank you for joining us. It is an absolute pleasure to be here, kids. I really mean it. Mary was in the booth with John McEnroe and Bill McAtee calling Serena's first major final win at the U.S. Open of 1999. There's an interesting story there. McEnroe and Carrillo were childhood friends who teamed up to win the French Open mixed doubles title in 1977. But when McEnroe joined CBS, one of his contractual demands was that Mary would not be allowed to call men's matches alongside him. A couple of kids from Compton, California showed up and they were good. And all of a sudden John said like, you know, I wouldn't mind calling a little women's tennis. <laughs> And he did. And I was happy to have him sit next to me. But uh, yeah, so we called that. And it was, you're right, it was a hell of a run. Here's something about Serena and Venus. They, they, they were given so much confidence as little kids, you know, from their parents, especially from Richard, who told them how great they were, who told them how beautiful they were, you know, who told them to, to, to understand, you know, all of that. And a lot of times great athletes, you know, do things before they're ready to do them, you know, <laughs> mm. um, before they even know they can do it, mm -hmm. they do it. But with both Venus and Serena, I always got the feeling that they knew even at a very young age that they could do it. I especially get excited when I know that I'm watching something very special and for both Venus and Serena, I knew, I knew how good I had it. I knew what a good seat I had in that house, you know, mm -hmm. and they just kept, they just kept showing us how, what, what kind of fighters they were, how deep their ambition was. Right. I mean, that, that was, it was as much fun to watch Serena in between points as it was when she was playing, because I mean, 
there was nothing sphinx-like about Serena. Mm-hmm. She let you know how she was feeling, you know? Um, that was also one of the great pleasures, I mean, that, that I've gotten to watch their whole act. It was clear from early on, to Mary and many others, that this wasn't tennis as we knew it. It wasn't just the next level power and athleticism. This was something more electric, something more polarizing. That became clear in 2001, barely six months after the controversy at Indian Wells. By that time, Super Saturday was a famous fixture at the U.S. Open. It consisted of three critical matches with the two men's singles semifinals sandwiched around the women's singles final. That sometimes produced close to 12 hours of high-quality tennis, but it also denied the women a precise starting time as well as a stage of their very own. But in 2001, the USTA made the women's final center stage and, even more surprising, moved the final into primetime. The reason Super Saturday went away and the reason that the women's final became a night match was because of Venus and Serena. That is why CBS did it. They knew how box office that was. And for a couple of years, they were getting Venus and Serena in the championship match at the U.S. Open. I literally just got chills because I remember that. And that night match was just... Oh, my God. I remember sitting in the boardroom and talking about, you guys don't have enough security. And they were like, what are you talking about? I'm like, do you realize this is history? Everybody and their mother is going to want to be coming out there. And sure enough, you know, when the Jackson 5 wanted to show up, we didn't have no place for them to sit. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it was it was a scene. It was a moment. It was a heavyweight boxing match. And that is what both of them brought to the table. Above and beyond that, the sisters were proving transformational. They brought elements of a different culture, black culture, to tennis. The iconic image from those times was of the girls with colorful beads in their hair. That in and of itself created some controversy. I honestly want to ask you two because you're so you're so close to this subject. I was very aware right from the beginning that I'm this much older Caucasian woman trying to explain where these two live, you know, in, in this world of tennis and how many how many things they were doing differently. I mean they really they were able to to do things their own way and that, that, they, that they trusted that that would work. And then all of these results started happening. I was still very aware of the fact that, you know, when they were both wearing beads and some of them would fall off onto the court. I know that my, my fellow commentator, well, that's a, they shouldn't be wearing them. They sh-, and they're like, they look unbelievable. And <laughs> changed another rule in tennis. Uh, yeah, really? You, they're not. Uh, there's a bead rule that that you think should be enacted. Really? I mean, it's uh, one now. It is one now. Is there a, is there a no bead rule? They're probably they, they, literally when one of the beads fell off. They made if if something falls off on the court, their right. obstruction or yeah. Right, right, right. They got and so and I loved I love the sound of the. I mean, yeah, I, I love how cool it sounded. You know, and some of the best photos of Venus and Serena are them flying in the air with their beads like rattling around their heads, right? Uh, 
So I, I, I always tried to be very mindful of the fact that these two were, I mean, obviously you came before, before Venus and Serena, so did Shanda, so did, I mean, there's a Laurie McNeil. I think there were plenty of, you know, Althea Gibson obviously was the real groundbreaker, but these two were, to your point, Zena, I mean, they became rock stars. They became me and they were unbelievably scrutinized. Yeah. Uh, and, and the fact that they both came through that the way they did. <laughs> We'll be right back with more of our conversation with Mary Carrillo on The Goat, Serena. It's hard to overstate the impact Serena has had on the game, including the rules and even officiating itself. Take the changes in the wake of her controversial three-set loss to Jennifer Capriati in the quarterfinals of the U.S. Open in 2004. Capriati benefited from three highly questionable line calls in the tense, decisive third set of that match. Serena's going to come right over to talk to the chair. I, that was way in. John, that was way in. I always defer to you on these things. I thought it was good. Excuse me? This is crazy. Well, that's not even close. I mean, that's not even close. I mean, give me a break. Well, it's, this is ridiculous. The most critical of those came on a Serena backhand that landed well inside the baseline. There was no out call by the line judge, but the chair umpire, Mariana Alves, overruled and decreed the ball out. The controversy created in that match, which Capriati won, spurred officials to fast-track the electronic line-calling system, which went operational at the U.S. Open in 2006. But electronic line-calling was not yet the fully electronic system we currently have at Grand Slam events. It merely provided electronic review of line calls. Three years after it was introduced, Serena was involved in another squabble over a line judge's call, and she couldn't even turn to electronic review for relief. It happened like this. Serena was serving in her 2009 U.S. Open semifinal against Kim Clijsters. She was at deuce in a critical game when the judge at the near baseline called her for a second serve foot fault. Foot faults were not officially eligible for player challenges, so Serena had no recourse to contest the unusual call at that critical moment. The double fault gave Kleisters a match point. Serena exploded at the line judge, abusing and threatening her with physical harm. She was quickly cited for unsportsmanlike conduct. As this was her second code violation of the match, this one cost Serena a point. Thus, Kleisters won without having to play another point, and she later went on to claim the title. To make matters worse for Serena, the statement she released about 24 hours later contained no apologies. The oversight triggered such an avalanche of criticism that Williams, who was still competing in the doubles with partner Venus, issued another statement. She wrote, 
I want to amend my press statement of yesterday, the news release began, and want to make it clear as possible. I want to apologize first to the lineswoman, Kim Kleisters, the USTA, and mostly tennis fans everywhere for my inappropriate outburst. I'm a woman of great pride, faith, and integrity, and I admit when I'm wrong. That was one of the two big occasions when the media and public opinion came down pretty hard on Serena. I can't tell you how many Serena Williams matches I've called where I'm really only watching one one end of the court. I'm really only <laughs> all those I, because when you watch her, you see all of her emotions, all those microaggressions. You can see when it's ramping up. You know, you can see that you know, uh, you know how again how much she she can get rattled when when her forehands you know flying on her or her her serve has lost its rhythm. Um, I I take Serena on a case by case basis. What she did with the lineswoman against Kim Kleisters, that was uh, uh, that was awful. And and I, I genuinely thought that because so she got she got defaulted out of that match, right? Mm-hmm. And but then she was allowed to play doubles, and I'm thinking, wait a minute, <laughs> wait a minute, U.S. Open, <laughs> uh, you've just kicked her out of the tournament, but you need her to play doubles. Uh, hello. And then she gets, and the thing is, once you get, so then they suspended Serena, but not, not so much. And they get, I think she got an $80,000 fine. It was like one of the biggest mm. fines anyone ever threw down on somebody. I mean, she got, because she could hear it all. I mean, she was, you know, it was indefensible what she had done. But then the Australian Open still wanted her to show up in Melbourne. So she was made, <laughs> she was made available for the Australian Open. So, I mean, again, some of the stuff, I mean, I don't think when she does some stuff wrong, uh, there's outcries on both ends. Both, it swings both ways. And probably somewhere in the middle mm. is the truth. But she is being held to standards that very few athletes get held to, right? That is so, every, I mean, every twitch, you know, everything she does is going to be scrutinized. And if you love her, and admire her and respect her and think she is one of the coolest athletes of the modern age, you, you say people are being unfair to her. Um, but again, I go back to her Osaka thing. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think she was cheating. I don't think she was getting signs that she was using from Patrick Maradalu, but I still think uh, the chair umpire was right. Yeah. yeah. So, and I mean, it, everything, more than one thing is true. We are all more than one thing. That was a good way to put it. Really, there are very few situations that are cut and dried. There's always some nuance, some other factor to consider. But it's undoubtedly true that Serena is held to a very high standard. That's the territory she occupies, and it's different than anyone else's. To put her infamous U.S. Open final of 2018 into perspective and take a deeper dive into what it says about Serena, we're going to bring in the person who actually triggered the incident. Patrick Maradoglu is the owner of a tennis academy in the south of France. He has been involved in coaching, among many others, Stefano Tsitsipas and Coco Gauff. But his most famous protege undoubtedly is Serena Williams, 
whom Maradoglu has coached since 2012. Patrick, thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, well, you know, so I want to ask you first, I mean, you and Serena, you guys have known each other for a long time now. You've been working together since 2012, uh, if I have that correct. That year, she had a fourth round loss at the Australian Open. She had a first round loss at Roland Garros, which was her first first round loss at a major. Uh, and she sought your help. How did that come about? And how did she look at that time? Like, what, what did you notice about her condition? She was she a bit uncertain during that time? What were your thoughts? Yeah, I think it was a it was a turning point. I mean, obviously it was, but I think she was at a certain point of her career where she was wondering what to do because she was getting thirty years old. Yeah, yeah. which psychologically for a tennis player, I think it's a, a turning age. At that time, most of the players were were mm. retiring around that age. Yeah, and she was not winning Grand Slams for two years, uh, losing the first round of Roland Garros was kind of a wake-up call for her. And I think that she thought, now first, the first thing, uh, the first thing she thought about was, I have to win Wimbledon. That's the first thing oh. that came to her mind, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> because that's how she thinks. But uh, after that, we had, a, I mean, several talks before Wimbledon, because uh, we ended up uh, working together before Wimbledon and during Wimbledon. Mm. And, and during those talks, uh, I could feel that she was really wondering uh, if she would continue to play or not. So what she told me was more, um, I want to win one more slash one last. It was not very wow. clear. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that, that was more that, yes. Uh, uh, because she, she was struggling to win, uh, to win a Grand Slam simply for, for the last two years. So that was the moment. And uh, how was she playing? Uh, I saw the match she lost in Rangaros, even though I was not uh, coaching her at that time yet. But uh, uh, I, I saw the match because I was working for Eurosport and I was w- watching the matches. And, mm-hmm. and I was a bit... Uh, uh, I thought the, <laughs> the match was interesting because it was not her, in a way, because mentally she's tough. And during this mm-hmm. match... She was not very tough mentally, mm-hmm. and and she was very unbalanced in whatever she was doing. That's the first wo- word that will come to my mind. The partnership raised eyebrows in many quarters, but just weeks after the confused, unbalanced champion struck up a relationship with Muradoglu, Serena played some of the best tennis of her life in winning Wimbledon and the gold medal in singles at the 2012 London Olympic Games. Well, Patrick, that, that brings on, you know, you're French, and as we know, Serena's about as American as they can come. What culture difficulties did it bring, and, you know, how did you deal with that? I think it was more uh, an advantage than uh, anything else, because, uh, yes, we are very, very, totally different, like really opposite in many, uh, many aspects, uh, where we come from, uh, our background, <laughs> our culture, everything's so different. Uh, but uh, I think it made us curious about the other one. Mm. Uh, and I think that was going both ways. And we're both super open. So we were wanting to learn the other one, kind of, which is great for, for coaching, because that's mm. what it is about. 
Um, so I didn't see it as a difficulty. Uh, no, I, th- I think it was quite an, an event, an advantage. I think she likes people who are different. I mean, I don't think she loves people who are different. She has only people that are special around her, like very different. And, uh, mm-hmm. and I love also people who are different. So it brought even more interest, I think, to the other, to each other. Serena and Murata Glue clearly were a great fit. The years can attest to that. Serena won 10 of her major singles titles and counting while working with Patrick. One of the major reasons for that may be the French coach's nature as a reformer. He holds an expansive view of personality and believes that the relentless focus on tradition and decorum holds back the game. He has lobbied long and hard to allow coaching during matches. He prefers a more streamlined scoring system and considers the code of conduct an outdated, overly punitive system. He doesn't believe players are given enough room to express their emotions on the court, a criticism that resonates with many Serena fans. I just saw the Marty Fish documentary. I tweeted about it. I think the documentary was brilliant. And what I, a thing that struck me during the documentary is that we saw some important moment of the, of, in tennis in the 80s and it just showed how more spectacular it was. Like the, mm. the, the crowd was crazy. They were running on the court after the match. <laughs> uh, I remember when, when Yannick Noah won Ryan Garros yes. in 83. It was crazy. The whole crowd <laughs> jumped on the court. He, his father took him like this. It was unbelievable. <laughs> I remember that. <laughs> the emotion was like multiplied by a, a hundred. And the players were playing with the crowd. They were crazy like sport sh- should be. If you look at NBA, soccer, all those, those sports, sport is passion. It's passion and it's, uh, and it's emotion. And if you try to control the emotion and say the emotion should be channeled and go only in the positive, mm-hmm. you don't give anything to the crowd. I think tennis would gain so much uh, with uh, letting the emotion show. And, and sport is also about, you know, the, the fans feel emotion when the player can also share emotions. If the the player shares only positive emotion, Mm -hmm. it's really not much because you know how much, I mean, you both played at the highest level, how much crazy emotion you go through during a match. If a lot of people love Serena so much is because even if you look at her face, Mm -hmm. you can see where she, what she goes through during a match, the emotion, Mm -hmm. she can't hold it. She shares it all. Yeah. 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 Uh, so, so that's why I think it would be such a, a plus. I don't think we should. I don't like that uh, a govern, governing body, whoever it is, can tell people how they should behave, what is right, what is wrong. I think even on a moral standpoint, I'm mm-hmm. completely against that. I think hmm. everybody's responsible for himself or herself. Uh, they showcase their personality. They showcase their brand. Mm-hmm. They can showcase what they want. That's their problem. Nobody, nobody should tell them how they should behave. I think it's completely wrong. That's my personal opinion. We'll be right back with more of our conversation with Patrick Maradoglu on The Goat, Serena. There's a straight line going from Maradoglu to that disastrous 2018 U.S. Open final between Serena and Naomi Osaka. 
a lot has been written and said about that final. So we'll just do the brief recap to set the table. Osaka, just 20 years old and playing in her first Grand Slam final, led Serena by a set. She was serving at 40-15 to level the second set at one all. At that point, chair umpire Carlos Ramos spotted Muradoglu making hand gestures in the player guest box. Coaching during a match is prohibited in tennis, so Ramos gave Serena the prescribed warning with stiffer penalties to come if she or her team committed more violations of the code of conduct. Serena, who is famous for refusing to take advantage of on-court coaching, even when it is allowed in regular WTA tour events, argued with Ramos. She strongly denied receiving coaching, Murata Glue's gestures notwithstanding. Essentially, Serena was given a code violation for coaching she did not want or even notice. For a simple hand gesture suggesting that Serena should come forward more aggressively. If he gives me a thumbs up, he's telling me to come on. We don't have any code, and I know you don't know that, and I understand why you may have thought I, that was coaching, but I'm telling you it's not. I don't cheat to win. I'd rather lose. I'm just letting you know. Serena lost that game two points later, but she seemed energized by the controversy and leaped to a 3-1 lead. It earned her a standing ovation from the adoring New York crowd. But Osaka surged back, breaking Serena to get back on serve at 2-3. During the changeover, Serena smashed up her racket, earning a second code violation, this one for racket abuse, which cost her a point. Before continuing, Serena went to the chair umpire and pleaded with Ramos to announce to the crowd that she doesn't receive coaching. She denied ever cheating, she demanded an apology, but the crowd in Arthur Ashe Stadium, not privy to that conversation, was getting tired of it. They booed and their disapproval grew louder and more insistent. Osaka retained her composure. She won the next two games for a 4-3 lead. Serena still could not let her anger go. She approached Ramos again and this time said, you stole a point from me. You're a thief. The fans had no idea what was happening as Ramos called both players to the chair and told them that he was citing Serena with her third code violation for verbal abuse, which meant she forfeited an entire game. That left Osaka to serve for the match at 5-3. Osaka went on to win that game and the title. But there was no victory celebration. Osaka looked somber as she walked to the net where she stiffly received a hug from Serena. Both women were crying for different reasons. Osaka had been robbed of the joy a first-time Grand Slam winner feels. Williams felt disrespected with her reputation unfairly tarnished and her quest to win a record-equaling Grand Slam title number 24 was in ruins. Here is what Patrick had to say about the crisis. First, I have to say a few words about coaching, if you bring that up, uh, because that's what it was about. Um, the two things that were very annoying. First of all, uh, everyone who is on tour knows how much coaches coach during the matches. It's a total <laughs> joke, this story. 
about non-coaching. This, this is a dream that players are alone on the court, but it's not a reality, for sure. Um, so that's the first thing. And uh, even though, uh, honestly, Serena and myself, we're really low on coaching because, mm-hmm. because I don't want to do it. To, uh, first, I don't want to do it uh, because I think she's the best player ever in the history to figure out how to win when she's in trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I don't want her to think that suddenly she needs someone because mm. she's been able to figure it out by herself. And this is her strength. So if she starts to think that she needs me, it's gonna, it can only affect her negatively. So that's probably one of the reasons why we don't do it. I did it that day because I felt like it was a drama and, uh, and I, I could feel that she was lost. So that's why I did it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't regret it at all because i just did what all the coaches do i mean all is too much but 90, the immense majority <laughs> yeah do it all year long on all the matches and everybody knows on tour and it's tolerated because it's a fact and it's tolerated there is the rule and there is the use and the use uh, makes the rule in a way mm. you know mm. you're supposed to to cross the streets in the how do you call this thing the white uh, stripes the median so. yeah yeah Yeah, mm-hmm. but if you cross next to it and everybody does it and nobody says nothing and the policeman doesn't say anything, it becomes a rule, you know? It's kind of the same. Uh, so that was annoying. And the, the second thing that is very annoying is the double treatment. This is unacceptable. Mm. Uh, and that was also very shocking for that because there is a lot of double treatment. Uh, I think every chair umpire has his own way. Uh, and actually, if... We know this chair umpire that his way is this way all the time. Why not? But this mm-hmm. chair umpire had completely different uh, uh, way to behave in the same situation in a lot of other matches. So, I mean, so you're the victim of someone who decides that today this is the rule and tomorrow the rule is going to be different. So that was also very annoying. So anyway, but this is the past. Um, yeah, and you're right saying that Serena, uh, and I'm, I'm happy you bring that out because... A lot of, I mean, there, there were a lot of terrible comments at that time uh, from people that don't know what's going on. So mm-hmm. it's, it's also always good to, to give yeah. a bit of, of insights. Patrick's reference to double treatment points to another aspect of the incident. As things were going south, Serena accused Ramos of holding her to a different standard because she's a woman. That ultimately triggered long conversations about how much more the men players appear to get away with in the way of code violations and temperamental outbursts. It also did not go unnoticed that Serena is a woman of color. Once again, we come up with the question, was Serena Williams treated unfairly? Was the incident just another episode in a long history of prejudice against Serena on a variety of fronts? I'm not a paranoid person at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but I look at the reality of things. Uh, I try to be lucid and, and see things uh, the right way. And if you look at it, uh, I'm not going to name any player, of course. And, uh, but, you know, there are guys who say 200 times per match and, <laughs> and shout it really loud and nothing happens to them. No, but it's the truth. It's, uh, mm-hmm. Reality. There are people who take 10 minutes title breaks, for example, it's not Serena, but at, at every match and nothing happens to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, so there are uh, most of the coaches coach at every match. And when it starts to be really too obvious, which was not the case for us because it happens only once, 
then the, the chair umpire tells the player, tell your coach to, to slow down mm-hmm. because it's, it's getting too much, which is what happens most of the year. So why Serena all the time? Why? Because she's a woman, probably because uh, of a color, probably. Uh, I know it's a big statement to say, but uh, you have to, why her then, you know? Uh, I think the, this chair umpire was really, uh, he didn't like that a woman could speak to him like this. And that's mm-hmm. why he went too far, because for me, he's responsible for what happened. And I'm going to say it as much as I can say it, because I, I was shocked also by the statement after that. It was uh, the governing bodies were, were like made a statement to, to be with him. Uh, I think he made an incredible mistake during this final and he mm-hmm. screwed it up completely, which can happen. You know, and it, it, nobody's perfect. We can make a mistake. When the player makes a mistake, he's punished. When yeah. a chair umpire makes a mistake, he should be also Uh, paying the consequences of it. And instead of that, it was Serena's fault 100%, which was, I was shocked because I read the transcript of what he said to Chiampire during the match. And if you read it, you have a better view about uh, what happened, yeah. what he said to her. Uh, so, yeah, so I think she, yeah, she suffered from a lot of uh, unfair treatment. Uh, and I say it again, there are a lot of double standards in these sports. Uh, mm. especially uh, regarding the, the umpiring, because, again, uh, they read the, the rules uh, differently and they apply the rules differently. Some matches, the player is standing in front of his box discussing with, the bo- with his box during the match. This is crazy. And when I, I do this, and then suddenly it's a drama. Yeah. So no, it's, it's just double standard. That, that's what's yeah. shocking. I, I, don't, I mean, if you do something against the rule that you're punished, it's fine. But the rule has to be the same for everyone and every day. Before we say goodbye to this incident and to the role various controversies had in the evolution of Serena Williams, there's one more thing we'd like to share. It's about the close bond between player and coach and how it has survived as strong a test in that match as anyone could imagine. It makes you wonder if Patrick isn't Serena's life coach as well as her coach for life. Here's what he said about that. I will never pretend to be uh, that. <laughs> I think, no, no, no. <laughs> I think we're, we're, we're extremely uh, good friends. Uh, we know each other now for nine years, uh, more than uh, most of the people, because when you're coaching someone, you spend so much time with that person. Mm-hmm. And you go through a lot of different moments and very emotional moments. So you live those moments together and you go through them together. Just to say a word on, because I think it shows how an incredible person she is. When this happened, and I mean, she felt I was responsible for what happened during this US Open final because I did the coaching and she didn't ask me for anything. So it was my responsibility and I take it 100%. After she said, why did you do that? What happened? You never do that. What happened to you? So we had this explanation right after the match. And she said to me, but don't worry. Because I know that there is not one bone of dishonesty in your body. So I'm with you 100%. Oh, and, and, and people went a lot against her. But it was my fault 100% that this thing happened. So, so that's why, I mean, the, the relationship that we built, I think, is very strong for all those moments, for uh, all the things we went through, for the, the trust we have in each other. That will do it for this episode of The Goat, Serena, The Controversy Gene. 
the incidents and recollections we heard made it clear that on many occasions in tennis, Serena was the unstoppable force meeting the immovable object. It was just as true in live play as in controversial incidents. That has always been Serena's way, starting from the time when the beads rattled in her hair, her game rattled opponents, and her perfectionist tendencies and willingness to stand up for herself led to conflicts within tennis. Many have observed the way Serena thrives on drama. As Mary Carrillo said, she has never stopped fighting, even when she was fighting herself. That instinct has brought Serena into conflicts on occasion, but it's an inextinguishable part of her personality. Serena won some, and she lost some. People still debate the particulars of the controversies she was involved in, but the one thing that's difficult to analyze is the role that being the GOAT played in those episodes. It's easy to forget that Serena is operating in an entirely different psychological environment than the rest of us, than even the bulk of her peers. Serena's highs are probably euphoric, her lows more devastating. Think back to what it must have been like to be in her shoes at that Indian Wells tournament in 2001, and how that might have shaped the 19-year-old's view of the sport, its fans, and her rivals. Serena overcame that traumatic experience and took on a burden that only the greatest champions can carry. Patrick Maradoglu knows what that burden is comprised of. The Goat Serena was written by Pete Boda. This season is hosted by Zena Garrison and Chanda Rubin. Produced and directed by Mark Francis and Scott Waxman. Our consulting producer is Andrew Cal. Production assistance from Anita Okoye. And our social media consultant is Stephen Tompkins. Original music by Andy Marvel. Our director of marketing and business development is Jacob Bronstein. Executive producers, Scott Waxman and Mark Francis. Special thanks to Oren Rosenbaum at UTA and Susan Canavan. Diversion Podcasts.